I invite you to find your Bibles. If you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 28 and verse 15. Life is full of decisions to make. Can I get an amen or an oh me? Many of you are faced with monumental decisions to make. Some of you perhaps will make them even this week. The question of God's guidance in decision-making and his will are all topics that are raised by our text today. My prayer is that you'll leave today with some very practical help for knowing and doing God's will and a greater understanding as well about the breastpiece of the high priest, which the text says was for making decisions. So let's turn to God's word in Exodus 28. We'll stand and read verses 15 through 30 of Exodus 28 this morning. This is God's word to Moses. He says, You are to make an embroidered breastpiece for making decisions. Make it with the same workmanship as the ephod. Make it of gold, of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and of finely spun linen. It must be square and folded double, nine inches long and nine inches wide. Place a setting of gemstones on it, four rows of stones. The first row should be a row of carnelian, topaz, and emerald. The second row, a turquoise, a lapis lazuli, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They should be adorned with gold filigree in their settings. The 12 stones are to correspond to the names of Israel's sons. Each stone must be engraved like a seal with one of the names of the 12 tribes. You are to make braided chains of pure gold cord work for the breastpiece. Fashion two gold rings for the breastpiece and attach them to its two corners. Then attach the two gold cords to the two gold rings at the corners of the breastpiece. Attach the other ends of the two cords to the two filigree settings and in this way attach them to the ephod's shoulder pieces in the front. Make two other gold rings and put them at the two other corners of the breastpiece on the edge that is next to the inner border of the ephod. Make two more gold rings and attach them to the bottom of the ephod's two shoulder pieces on its front, close to its seam, and above the ephod's woven waistband. The artisans are to tie the breastpiece from its rings to the rings of the ephod with a cord of blue yarn, so that the breastpiece is above the ephod's waistband and does not come loose from the ephod. Whenever he enters the sanctuary, Aaron is to carry the names of Israel's sons over his heart on the breastpiece for decisions as a continual reminder before the Lord. Place the Urim and the Thummim in the breastpiece for decisions so that they will also be over Aaron's heart whenever he comes before the Lord. Aaron will continually carry the means of decisions for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord. And may God bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing in honor of it. I invite you to be seated and join me in a word of prayer. (laughs) 
Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray, even now that as I am preaching, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, would you use your word and go forth powerfully by your Holy Spirit this morning. Teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Following the pattern I've been using in studying the tabernacle, I want us to first consider this morning the physical features of this breastpiece of which we've just read about. Essentially, the breastpiece was a giant pocket, a giant pocket folded over material and was folded double and it was a square that was nine inches wide and nine inches high. The literal text says it was a span. Now the span is the measurement between the outstretched thumb and pinky finger And curiously, this is kind of interesting to me, that is literally half a cubit, that nine inches. So a span, nine inches tall, nine inches wide, to be worn like a giant pocket on the chest of the high priest. It was made from finely spun linen, gold, blue, purple, scarlet yarn. It was a very costly piece of fabric. We learned more about that last week when Brother David was preaching about the ephod. The gemstones that were fixed there made four rows of three, and each gemstone was set in a gold setting, and on each stone was the name of one of the sons of Jacob, one name for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. The corners of the pocket, okay, would have had rings on it, so four rings, one on each corner, and those rings would have been attached with a gold chain to rings that were on the ephod waistband and on the shoulder pieces that also bore the names of the Israelites that had little rings attached to them. And this was designed to hold the, eph- the breastpiece in place with the ephod, which leads us into this consideration of the significance of the breastpiece. That's because although the instructions for the ephod were given first in chapter 28, make this ephod, then make the breastpiece, if you actually rewind to the beginning of the chapter, the breastpiece is actually listed first in an order of importance, in my opinion. If you look at chapter 28, verse 4, we read, these are the garments that they must make. And the Lord begins with a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, especially woven tunic, etc., going down, I believe, in order of importance much like the way God gave the instructions for the, or started with the Ark of the Covenant first and worked his way out from there, the breastpiece was the centerpiece of the priestly garments. Put it differently, the ephod was there to hold the breastpiece in place. It was there to give structure to tying down this breastpiece that was there for the high priest. There was, of course, significance in the ephod alone, and we looked into that last week. But its value was heightened by what it contained or what was affixed to it. So much so that later in the Old Testament, kings and leaders would ask for the ephod. But they weren't asking for the ephod just to wear the ephod like an apron. They asked for it because they really wanted what was attached to it. The kings and the leaders would then seek the breastpiece and use the urim and the thummim in it to help them know God's will. Largely, this was a way for them to make decisions as national leaders. Now, before we consider the obvious connection then to this idea of knowing and doing God's will, I don't want us to neglect two other aspects of the breastpiece significance. 
For one, there was significance in the gemstones that were listed. Nearly all of these gemstones that we read about here, the beautiful gemstones, carnelian, topaz, emerald, etc. Some of you are like, oh, that sounds really beautiful. And it would have been. All of them, most all of them were listed as gemstones that would have been seen in the Garden of Eden. That's read about in, ex, excuse me, in Ezekiel chapter 28. And then we see those gemstones listed again in heaven as they decorate the foundations of God's city in Revelation chapter 21. And the point of this, as, as we make this connection, is that where God dwells with his people, there these beautiful gemstones are. From the beginning to the end of the Bible, we have this beauty of God dwelling with his people and the beauty of the gemstones being in place. And so as one commentator put it, it shouldn't surprise us given all that we've learned about the tabernacle. It points both backwards and forwards from glory to glory. We see God dwelling with his people. Then furthermore, on these stones were inscribed the names of the tribes of Israel. We know from last week that the high priest bore the names of the Israelites on his shoulders. And here we see that the high priest carries them close to his heart. And this is, of course, a beautiful picture for us as we think about it. If we study from the book of Hebrews that Jesus is our great high priest, we can make the connection that Jesus, our high priest, cares for us. He bears our names on his shoulders, bearing our sin and our shame, and he carries our names near to his heart. He is our representative before God. Douglas Stewart in the New American Commentary says, whatever the high priest did, he did as the people's representative. His actions would have had the same effect as if every single one of the Israelites had come and done the same thing. The high priest symbolized all of Israel as he carried out his actions before the Lord. So the breastpiece reminds us of Eden and of eternity. And it also reminds us of the representative nature of our true and greater high priest, Jesus Christ. But now, I want us to consider the aspect, I think, of the greatest significance, which relates to the breastpiece, and that is what they contain, what it contained, the Urim and the Thummim. Reading in verse 29 and 30, we can get right to the heart of things, where we see, whenever the high priest enters the sanctuary, Aaron is to carry the names of Israel's sons over his heart on the breastpiece for decisions. That's what it's for as a continual reminder before the Lord. Place the Urim and the Thummim in the breastpiece for decisions so that they will also be over Aaron's heart whenever he comes before the Lord. Aaron will continually carry the means of decisions for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord. The Urim and Thummim are mentioned here in this text, but their exact nature is not described for us. We don't have a good idea of what the picture of what they might look like. And there's no explanation of uh, where they came from. Some commentators believe that since there is no instructions on how to make them, that they may have already existed, like pre-existed the instructions for the making of priestly garments. The Zondervan Encyclopedia of the Bible says that their names traditionally are understood to mean lights and darks. Another possibility is that they are associated with the, the words for cursing and innocence. Curse and innocence. 
But whatever their names actually meant and whatever their origin, it is clear from this text and from other texts in the Bible that their use, the use of this Urim and Thummim, were designed for receiving direction from the Lord for making decisions. Other passages indicate that the high priest was to use the Urim and Thummim to discern God's will in passages like Numbers 27, verse 21, 1 Samuel 28, verse 6, and Ezra chapter 2 and verse 63. Although none of those passages describe how they were to be used for that purpose, but it is often taken to involve some form of the casting of lots. The casting of lots. Now, this idea reflects the Bible's high view of God's providence, which is found, for example, in Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Have you ever read that verse in the Bible and considered God's providence? It should be obvious from the text in the book of Exodus and the rest of the Bible in general that God did not and does not normally use divination or the casting of lots as a method of his primary mode of revelation. Otherwise, it wouldn't have just been something for the high priest, would it? They would have been handing out lights and darks to everybody. Every Israelite would have had their own set of Urim and Thummim. But this is what helps me transition to talk about this whole idea of decision-making and the will of God. Because sometimes, I think, in our day, we treat knowing God's will like using a magic eight ball. And some of you are too young to know what a magic eight ball is. So uh, let me explain. It was like a plastic giant eight ball from pool. And on one side of it, it had this, some of the engineers can tell you how it worked, but like there was some little bubbly thing that would bubble up to the top and was like, should I eat tacos for lunch? And be like, certainly not, you know, or, you know, should I uh, marry this person? It's like, definitely, you know? So it was just kind of like this cutesy little toy type of thing that would give you varying answers to the questions that you had about what to do. We desperately want to know, should I do this or should I do that? And we want often specialized guidance from the Lord on any host of decisions that we make from what job we should take, which college we should attend, who we should marry, how early or late we should retire. How does God then guide his people? Well, again, I want us to first look at how God guided his people in the text we're reading and studying today and its related texts. But then it becomes apparent by looking at this that the Urim and the Thummim represented something on the order of a last resort of appeals to God for guidance. And at that, not individualized guidance, national guidance on matters that would require the agreement and concerted effort of an entire nation. The Urim and Thummim were mechanical devices of divination that had validity in certain limited contexts 
and only as God chose to guide the hand of a high priest in response to the faithful prayers of an obedient people. Philip Ryken points out that the breastpiece of decision could only be consulted by Israel's leader and only for things that truly mattered. They were not used, the Aroman Thummim were not used by ordinary people. And people did not go to the high priest every time they wondered if they should wear this or that, or if they should eat this or that, or if they should marry this person or that person. They did not even use the high priest and go to him for individual guidance on serious questions. This was not for individual use, in other words. So in the minutes that remain today in this message, I want to answer the question that I believe a text like this raises. So I want to be very clear. We're stepping away slightly from the text. But again, I believe it's an appropriate response to what we're studying as we consider this question of knowing and doing God's will. So this is application today. How do we know God's will? And the vast majority of what I'm going to share with you comes from a study produced by an apologist named Greg Kokel. He's written a book that some of you have read called Tactics before. Uh, Tactics is the name of the book. There's also another book in our book nook um, that's entitled Just Do Something. We actually have that in stock. We ordered a few more of those for today's message. Now, I've only personally skimmed that book. But the heart of this section of the message that I'm preaching right now is reflected in Kevin DeYoung's analysis as well. So if I move too quickly, or if you have questions about the rest of the message today, I suggest you go to the book nook and get Kevin DeYoung's book called Just Do Something. I think it's $7. Now, the first thing I want us to do to help answer this question and considering how do we know God's will is to go over what the Bible does not teach about knowing God's will. Although I think sometimes we do have misconceptions. So first of all, the Bible does not teach that we can rely on specialized individual guidance from God or rely on our own inner feelings. Now, we've all heard the phrase before, I've even used the phrase before, I feel led to do such and such. I've even used that time to time, maybe even from the pulpit. I feel led to do such and such. But our inner feelings cannot be taken as a definitive word from God of special guidance from the Lord. If we had time to look at the examples of God's specialized individual guidance, we would note that When God tells you to do something, it is often supernatural. It intervenes. It it gets your attention. There is no mistaking it. It's clear. It's abrupt. It's an intrusion into normal life. That is because our feelings, we can't rely on them because they sometimes mislead us if we're honest, don't they? There are many times, many times, I don't feel like obeying God's word. But all Christians would agree that we can know God's will, at least this much, right? Like we know this is God's will for us, but sometimes we don't feel like doing the clearly revealed will of God. So we can't rely on our inner feelings. 
Secondly, the Bible does not teach us that we should always have a peace about something before we do it. Again, I know I have personally said things like this before. I don't have a peace about this decision or that decision, which may be true. But the thing about it is the peace of God that passes all understanding, a passage like that, does not relate to decision-making in the book of Philippians. It relates to us taking our anxious thoughts before the Lord with prayer and thanksgiving. Having a peace about doing something can't even be supported from Colossians 3.15. A text like that says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. When we think, well, there it is. We should have Christ's peace to rule our hearts and our minds as we make decisions. The problem is, that verse isn't about peace as it relates to decision-making. That's about peace as it relates to external harmony between Christians based on love and forgiveness. This is why you should never just read one Bible verse. Read it in context. In verse 12, it says of Colossians 3, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. See, the the theme there is going on relationships with one another. And he says, you are called to be in one body, to be in unity. That's the peace about which Paul is writing in Colossians. Again, I could say there are times when I don't feel inner peace about being obedient. Do you think Jesus felt a peace about dying on the cross? Actually, we know from Scripture, he sweat drops of blood in anxious inner turmoil. He begged the Father for an alternative path to his will. But Jesus knew God's will, and it was not leading him to a place of physical or internal peace, but bodily turmoil. Friends, sometimes doing God's will is tough. Taking up your cross, denying yourself, will not always produce a sense of inner peace. That would be an unreliable metric when it comes to our decision-making. And then thirdly, the Bible does not teach that every open door is a door we should walk through. The Bible does not teach that every open door is a door we should walk through. Have you ever said or heard somebody say, God opened a door for me? That may be true. Uh, the, The Apostle Paul acknowledged once that God opened a door for effective ministry for him. And yes, he went through that door. But God also opened the doors of the prison in Acts chapter 16. And Paul stayed put. Supernatural. Amazing. God opened prison doors. But Paul stayed right where he was. So just because there's an open door in front of you does not mean you are supposed to walk through it. An open door then cannot be a definitive sign of God's guidance. Speaking of signs, we often wish for, long for signs from God, don't we? Like Gideon's fleece. Have you ever heard about that? I'm just putting my fleece out there to see if this is God's will, whether I should take this job or not. 
But let's recall, Gideon's fleece was a supernatural sign in both directions. It was a supernatural sign for yes and a supernatural sign for no. Our fleeces don't often have that kind of quality to them. We're like, if it's God's will for me to marry her, let her pick up on the third ring, right? Like, that's not supernatural at all, right? And I'm not suggesting this, okay, because I don't believe this is the way God normally works. But if you want God to give you a sign, make it supernatural in both ways. Like, if it's yes, levitate the piano. And if it's no, levitate the podium, Like, make it truly a supernatural thing if that was the way we were supposed to seek God's will. Again, I would argue it's not. The Bible teaches that we do not all get a magic eight ball. We do not all have our own personal Urim and Thummim for every decision we're faced with. So if God doesn't give us definitive Guidance with sign seeking, open doors, having a piece about it, or by our inner feeling about which direction we should take. What does the Bible teach about knowing and doing God's will? First of all, in broad strokes, I want to kind of define terms. I want to disambiguate. I want to take away any ambiguity from this. That when we talk about God's will, the Bible teaches that God has two wills. This is an important thing to note. There is the sovereign will of God, which is called often by theologians, his will of decree. And then there is the moral will of God, which again, to make it fancy because theologians like to alliterate, is his will of desire. God's will of decree and God's will of desire. Let me give you examples. The sovereign will of God, his will of decree can never be thwarted. Ephesians 1.11 says, God works all things together according to the counsel of his will. That's a pretty comprehensive statement. God works all things together according to the counsel of his will. In Romans chapter 9, Paul rhetorically asks the question, who can resist God's will? In Daniel chapter 4, a book about God's sovereignty, all the inhabitants of the earth, verse 35 says, are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? The psalmist says, God sits in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. Isaiah 46, verse 9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end, decreeing, declaring, telling, the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. In one sense, then, everything that happens is God's will. He is in complete control, which creates, I know, for some of you very smart people, a question of what about evil? And let's remember that God works all things together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So just to kind of just brief, this is not a a, a sermon about the problem of evil, but let's just briefly remember that what Humans intended for evil. God intended for good in the book of Genesis. Just remember, God is in control of every aspect of our lives. 
God is sovereign. He is in complete control. He is interested in even the smallest of details. Like Matthew chapter 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. This is the kind of God, when we talk about his will, he is sovereign and he has his will of decree. But God's sovereign will, for the most part, is hidden. The secret things belong to the Lord. We usually know God's sovereign will in hindsight or through what has been specifically revealed to us in Scripture. We don't have access to know God's sovereign will for our purposes of decision-making. But then there is God's moral will or his will of desire. The Bible also says things about God's will, okay? Just let's get these two categories, God's will and God's will, okay? God's sovereign will, God's moral will. Things like this. In 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wills that everyone be saved. But does that happen? Do people perish without coming to repentance? And sadly, the answer is yes. People die without even knowing the gospel. People that have heard the gospel reject the gospel and do not repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. This would be an example of God's will not being done. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is the will of God. Your sanctification, Paul says, this is God's will for you, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Paul goes on to say other things, but Everyone in the church is obviously not sanctified, totally. And to be very clear, I don't need to convince you that not every Christian abstains from sexual immorality, which we are told explicitly is God's will for you. Paul tells the Ephesians, God's will for them, God's will, God wills that we not get drunk, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. But Christians sometimes do get drunk. And we certainly are not always filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter tells believers in 1 Peter chapter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, plain as day, the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Do all believers submit themselves to governing authorities? Are we uh, putting people to silence by this? Sometimes the answer is no. These examples demonstrate the revealed will of God. God's moral will, God's will of desire is his revealed will. We often refer to the Ten Commandments as the moral law. Is it God's will for you to obey the Ten Commandments? Absolutely. Like no question about it. Does God desire for you to obey all the commandments, to believe the gospel? You bet he does. That is God's will for you. 100%, no doubt about it. But this will of God, this moral will of God, unlike God's sovereign will, can be thwarted by human disobedience. God's moral will 
can be and oftentimes is transgressed. But let me tell you one thing that you cannot say about God's will. God's moral will can be known. It can be known. You can know God's will for you. It is right here in his word. Listen, as a pastor, I have found in times of counseling with individuals, 95% of the time, it is never truly a lack of clarity on God's will. Married couples know Scripture says God hates divorce. Young couples living together know God does not condone fornication. Men who are caught in addiction to pornography or addiction to alcohol, they know lust is a sin. They know drunkenness is a sin. It is usually not a matter of knowing God's will. It's a matter of not feeling like doing God's will. Amen and oh me. Like up here preaching to myself, which is why our feelings can be so dangerous. Our culture will insidiously tell spouses, you deserve better. You deserve to be happy. And so I've had Christians look me in the eye and say, God told me it's okay to divorce my spouse because he's selfish or because she doesn't have sex with me or because he works too much or because she doesn't make me feel young anymore. Oh, but don't worry, Pastor Jason. I have a piece about it. It grieves me. Brothers and sisters, that is not God speaking to you. It may be a bad burrito you ate, or more likely, more likely, it is Satan tempting you to disobey the clearly revealed word of God. His will is not unclear. Now, I imagine most of you in the room will grant me that. You, you will grant me that. Like, you, you're expecting me to say, if you want to know God's will, read your Bible. That, that is true. So, assuming that is true and separated as you are right now, perhaps from a trial that might distract you, you may be in a good place, a good headspace where you know seeking God's will begins with studying his word. Great. But what about places where there doesn't seem to be clear guidance from God's word? You know, when you really wish you had the breastpiece and the urum and the thummim to throw. Instead of staring down a decision with fear of missing out on God's so-called perfect will for you, allow me to share with you a different way, which is called the, the wisdom model of decision-making and the will of God. Now, the basic premise of the wisdom model of decision-making is that we have freedom to choose anything we want within the dual parameters of God's moral will, which is his revealed will in the Bible, and the wisdom that God gives to us. Assuming we are in submission to God's revealed moral will, we are to, like a Venn diagram, overlay that circle of what we know to be true from God's word with the circle of answers to the question, what is wise under these circumstances? And once more, I want to be abundantly clear. We're not allowed to choose any path that clearly violates God's 
revealed will in Scripture. That is to say, God's moral will governs, governs not just the ends we pursue, but also the means to our ends. This is very important. That includes your attitude and your motive. Like, remember when we studied the Ten Commandments, we realized that biblical ethics is more than just the thing. Don't do this. Don't do that. Do this. That's, that's conduct. That's one aspect of a moral event. But the Bible makes it clear that the, the real moral, the real ethical thing for Bible-believing Christians to do is at the intersection of not just our conduct, but our character and our goals. So there may be something you're considering that maybe there's not a clear uh, guidance from God's word about the conduct to pursue. But are you pursuing that end with the right attitude? Are you pursuing that decision with the right goal? Are you doing this thing for the praise of man? Are you doing this to glorify God? Now, all of a sudden, when we start asking those questions, God's word does start to come into play on a host of decisions that we make. And we should ask God to help us discern in our own hearts by his Holy Spirit, are we doing this to bring glory to God? Am I choosing this path because I want more money or more power or pleasure? You know, what is our motive as well? So this is important as we study. What is motivating us? And so we learn about God's will from Scripture by reading, studying the Bible, uh, by carefully considering Scripture, meditating upon it, memorizing Scripture, being taught God's Word, be filled, be saturated with God's Word. And once you've searched the Scripture and submitted your will to God's revealed will for your character, conduct, and your goals— then make decisions with wisdom. This means do what is sensible and what is expedient. God commands us. God commands us. I'm going back to God's word to pray for wisdom. The Bible teaches us this is his will. James chapter one says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. Like that's something you should do. If you lack wisdom, ask God for wisdom who gives to all generously and without finding fault, ungrudgingly. And the wisdom God will grant will be given to him. The book of Proverbs teaches us that wisdom helps us make good, sound choices. And we should also note that wisdom can come from a variety of sources. Wisdom certainly comes from the Bible, but it also comes from good, godly counsel, from doing some research and from good old life experience, like wisdom should instruct our decisions. Now, once we've found that intersection of the Venn diagram of God's will revealed in scripture, God's moral will, and what is wise to do under the circumstance, let me throw a small, little tiny circle in, okay? We're going to throw a third circle, and this is your personal desires and your conscience, Our conscience should never be ignored, but our consciences are not perfect. Paul teaches some have a strong conscience, some have a weak conscience. That's why we begin with God's word, because we want our conscience to be in tune with God's revealed will. 
but we are free to narrow down our decisions based on personal desire when those decisions are within the bounds of what is biblical and what is wise. And then lastly, when we finally do make that decision, we need to do so in humble surrender to God's sovereignty, to God's sovereign intervention. That is to say, God has the privilege, though not the obligation, of intervening in our plans. He might use obstacles, roadblocks, problems. He could open a door. (laughs) He could redirect our paths. Like, we don't know sometimes how God is at work as well. And when the circumstances change, like if he does sovereignly intervene, we then respond at each turn by going back, rinse, lather, repeat. Go back and ask, now under these new circumstances that I have, is this God's moral will? Is it wise? And what are my personal desires? So we submit ourselves to his will. So to put it in a recap, first of all, determine which options, if any, are excluded from the Bible, including not just the conduct, but our character and our goals. What's our attitude about this thing? How am I thinking about this? And what is my purpose for doing this? Then secondly, once we know that the action is not excluded from the Bible, then apply wisdom and your personal desires to the remaining choices. Examine the circumstances, research the facts, weigh the alternatives, get counsel from other people. But then third, make decisions with an attitude of humble surrender to the Lord. Like what James teaches us, say, if God wills, I will do such and such tomorrow, right? Because God can intervene and and is free to do so. He is sovereign to do so. And then fourth, if he does intervene, adjust to any new circumstances using the exact same method. This is the wisdom model. Now, the Bible is full of examples to support this approach to decision-making. To give you a few from Scripture for you to study on your own, Paul's decision to go to Rome, Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15. The Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. This is what the Bible teaches, and then this is what we think is wise. So do those things too. This is our suggestions to you. Then there's Paul's advice on marriage, 1 Corinthians 7. Like, I say, not the Lord. Like, I just think it's wise that you take my advice. Paul. That's just Paul's opinion. Then Paul's second and third missionary journeys, Acts 15, chapter 15, and Acts chapter 18. There was dealing with the problem of the Hellenistic widows in Acts chapter 6, where again, they say it's not right for, uh, for the apostles to be uh, pulled apart, pulled away from the reading of the word and prayer, and so they thought it wise to appoint people to help in that circumstance. And then the problem of Christian lawsuits in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 6. These are a handful of examples of the approach of using godly wisdom. Now, I know that this message may challenge some of you. It may even go contrary to an approach that you've used in the past for seeking to determine God's will. Listen, I have seen and heard Christians say, sometimes when they don't know what to do, they literally do this. How far away are we from the Urim and the Thummim when we do stuff like that? And just to remind you, the Urim and the Thummim, the Israelites did not have their own personal set. 
So if your approach to deciding what to do has been more like that, you've probably failed to realize that God has abandoned that approach. The Bible speaks of the Urim and Thummim, and then it just kind of disappears from usage. Largely, there is one New Testament example. I would argue that in Acts, uh, the, the casting of lots was a description, not a prescription for how things should have been done. God stopped using that method of divine revelation centuries ago. Just like you and me, when it came to the practical decisions of everyday life, as it related to personal choices that affected the future, the Old Testament Israelites also had to rely on sanctified common sense. As a rule, God does not decide for us. Instead, like a good father, he teaches us how to make wise decisions. And so I want to encourage you today to take a demystified approach to knowing and doing God's will. Couple the wisdom model with prayer. Prayer like Jesus. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Jesus taught us also when we don't feel like doing something that we know clearly to be God's will. Father, not my will, but yours be done. You see, far too often, we do not lack for knowledge of God's will. We lack for the will to know, to do what God has already told us to do. We don't lack for knowledge. We lack the will to do what we know God has already shown us in his word. So my prayer as we close today is the Holy Spirit will empower us to live in obedience to his revealed will and to grant us the wisdom we need for making sound decisions, which we are free to make each and every day.